Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So what are you supposed to do between each Engadget podcast? Wait in silence? I'm Matt Smith, and every morning I walk through the day's biggest tech stories. It's short, relevant, and ready for listening whenever you wake up. Find Engadget Morning Edition wherever you find your podcasts, or ask your smart speaker for the latest news from Engadget. What's up, everyone, and welcome back to the Engadget Podcast. I'm Senior Editor Devinder Hardwar. I'm Reviews Editor Sherlyn Lowe. Today, we will be chatting about The God Equation, the new book by physicist Dr. Michio Kaku, who's joining us to chat more about that. And we'll also be diving into LG leaving the smartphone market with Engadget's Chris Velasco. As always, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. Leave us a review on iTunes because that's super helpful. And uh, if you have any questions, drop us a note at podcast.engadget.com. Let's go straight to our illustrious guest, Dr. Michio Kaku. Thank you for joining us, sir. Thank you. Well, you know, thank you. It all started. Mm-hmm. It all started when I was eight years old. <laughs> Back then, the a great scientist had just died, and it was in all the papers. They flashed a picture of his desk with an open book, and the caption said, "The greatest scientist of our time could not finish that book." Well, <laughs> I was mesmerized. I was hooked. I had to know what was in that book. So I went to the library, and I found mm-hmm. out this man's name was Albert Einstein. And that book was to be the theory of everything, the God equation. An equation no more than one inch long that would allow us to read the mind of God. Well, I was hooked. I wanted to know everything <laughs> possible about this final theory this theory which would unify all the forces of the universe into a single theory. So when I was in high school, I decided to build an atom smasher in my mom's garage. As we all do, yeah. And I said, Mom, can I have built a 2.3 million electron volbitajon particle accelerator in the garage? And she said, sure, why not? And don't forget to take out the garbage. Well, I assembled 400 pounds of transformer steel, 22 miles of copper wire, and I built a 3 million electron volt Betatron accelerator in the garage. Every time I turned it on, it consumed 6 kilowatts of power, drained all the power in the house, and I heard this pop sound as I blew out every single circuit breaker in the house. My poor mom, she would come home from a hard day's work, see the lights flicker and die, and then she said, why can't I have a son who plays baseball? And for God's sake, why can't he find a nice Japanese girlfriend? 
Why does he have to build these machines in the garage? Well, now we have the biggest machine on Earth, the Large Hadron Collider, also searching for the theory of everything. The God equation, the equation that would unify all the laws of science into perhaps an equation one inch long, like E equals mc squared. That equation unlocked the secret of the stars. That equation is half an inch long, and yet it unified m, mass, with mm -hmm. E, energy. We want a similar equation that unites the entire universe. Excellent. Thank you, Dr. <laughs> Kaku. I just want to say I've been reading your books, I think, since high school. I think it was Hyperspace was the first one I found. And uh, that book kind of reshaped the way I thought about science and the construction of the world and everything. What are you trying to communicate with the God equation um, that you haven't really covered in your last few books? Is there new science to add to this whole uh, quest for the God equation? Well, just two weeks ago, there was this mm -hmm. huge earthquake emanating from the Large Hadron Collider that shook the foundations of physics. For the past 50 years, we've had a clumsy theory, an ugly theory called the standard model. It fits the data of hundreds of subatomic particles that we get by smashing protons apart. But we think there's a higher theory. How can Mother Nature be so devilish as to create this ugly theory as a foundation of reality? It's sort of like taking a platypus, an aardvark, and a whale, scotch taping them together with scotch tape and declaring that to be nature's finest evolutionary achievement. The most elegant, the most beautiful of nature's creatures. Well, we found a deviation and perhaps, just perhaps, it's the signal of a higher theory, which we think is string theory. Now, string theory says that if I had a super microscope and could see an electron, it would not be a dot at all. It would be a rubber band. You twang it, it turns into a neutrino. You twang it again, it turns into a quark. So all the subatomic particles are nothing but notes on a tiny rubber band. So what is physics? Physics is the harmonies you can write on these vibrating rubber bands. What is chemistry? Chemistry is the melodies you can play when these rubber bands bump into each other. What is the universe? The universe is a symphony of these vibrating strings. And then what is the mind of God? The mind of God is cosmic music resonating through 11-dimensional hyperspace. That is the mind of God. I've always loved that idea. Um, we also saw some pretty major news this week, too. Um, news around muons, which I think got a lot of people very interested as well. Apparently, a muon did not move the way scientists expected it would. And that's apparently a good sign for string theory, too, right? Exactly. We've been looking for a deviation from this ugly theory, the standard model, which we mm -hmm. think is nothing but the lowest octave. The lowest octave of a vibrating string could be ugly, but they're higher <laughs> octaves. And the whole spectrum of octaves is gorgeous, beautiful, simple. So we've been looking for a clue. It turns out that all of Einstein's theory and the standard model of particles is nothing but the lowest octave of a string. Mm -hmm. And so when we see the diversity of matter around us, even if Einstein had never been born, we would have discovered it as the lowest vibration of a vibrating string. But there are higher octaves too. We hope this particle, the muon, will be different from the electron. The standard model predicts mm -hmm. they are identical, except the muon is heavier 
than an electron. This new theory said, no, 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 no. We're looking at the tail of a lion, a tail of a lion, and we hope the lion is attached to this tail. And that's why we think that we're looking at the clue, the first tangible clue that string theory is the theory of everything. That's super exciting. Uh, I'm going to have to just ask my co-host, Sherlyn. Sherlyn, do you have any questions about what's going on here? Because this is stuff I've been reading about forever, but I don't know if you've followed this, uh, this sort of like physics thinking and new, new thinking around our models. Myself, I'm, I'm, my understanding of science mostly comes from science fiction, which is I'm slightly embarrassed to say. But, but these are theories that are posited in so many different books and novels and movies already. It's really exciting to hear like what we're discovering. And I'm excited to read your book even more now, by the way. <laughs> and by the way, I'm a fan of science fiction, too. And you see, Einstein's theory does not answer the basic questions. What happened before the Big Bang? What's on the other side of a black hole? Are there other universes? Are there gateways to these universes? Is time travel possible? All these questions are way beyond Einstein's theory, but they can be solved with the theory of everything. So the theory of everything says that our universe is a bubble. The bubble is expanding. We live on the skin of the bubble, and that's the Big Bang Theory. But there are other bubbles out there, says string theory. We live in a bubble bath of a bubble bath of parallel universes. And then the next question you're going to ask me is, is Elvis Presley still alive in a parallel universe? <laughs> and the answer right. is, well, yeah, we could create it. A, we can envision a universe where the king is still alive, belting out those hits, but in a different <laughs> universe. So this is where science fiction meets hard physics in string theory. Mm. I mean, I would love to be proven or, or to see some hard evidence, like you said. Uh, a quick question from the live chat, by the way, Dr. Kaku. What do you hope people will take away or build on after reading your book? And this question is from Jonathan Anderson. Well, for 2,000 years, philosophers and scientists have tried to find a paradigm, a, a theme, some meaning in this vast diversity that we see around us. What can unify all this? And the answer is music that each subatomic particle is like a musical note, A, B flat, G. All these musical notes correspond to electrons, neutrinos, quarks. And so we see that the universe is this symphony of strings. So I like to think of it this way. The universe is a chess game. And we have spent 2,000 years trying to figure out how the pawns move and how the bishop moves. And now we're gaining a huge step forward with string theory. We're figuring out the rules of the game. And then the next question is, will I be out of a job? Will I be out <laughs> of a job because we have a theory of everything? We don't need physicists anymore. Well, the answer is no, because we need to become grand masters. That is our destiny. I think that's the destiny of the human race, to find the God equation and then to become chess masters, masters of chess. And that, I think, is our ultimate destiny. Excellent. You know, Dr. Kaku, since I started reading your work, um, a lot has changed. That was the mid-90s. So since then, the internet took over the world. Everybody has supercomputers in their pockets. We're more connected than we ever have. I think it was your work that made me aware of the idea of the singularity, you know, a point where technology can also surpass our own understanding. Has all the progress over the last few decades really made that idea seem more realistic to you uh, about the singularity? Well, I made predictions going back oh, over 20 years. And if you read my yep. books, you realize, <laughs> oh my God, this guy was right. 
And why is it that I was able to make so many correct decisions and predictions? Because you see, physics is the basis of reality. Physics allows you to determine what is impossible, what is plausible, and what is possible if you just threw money at it. So I get a chance to interview also a lot of the hundreds of the world's top scientists. I also work for the Discovery Channel, Science Channel, and BBC Television. And I've had a chance to interview all these great, great scientists who are building the future in their laboratories. And by the way, every time I interview these great scientists, I ask them the cosmic question, the question of all questions. I ask them the question, is there intelligent life on the earth? Well, I was watching the Kardashians on TV last night, and I've come to the conclusion that there's no intelligent life on this planet. Oh, no. If the aliens ever land on this planet, they'll say, nope, nope, no way, no intelligent life on this planet. Next. Let's go to the next planet. Yeah, oh, please no. blacklist this planet. Um, you know, to to what you're saying, we actually talked with uh, Bill Nye as well, a great scientific communicator uh, last year, and he was very adamant about fighting the anti-science sentiment we're seeing, you know, politically and across the world these days. Do you feel like the idea of anti-science, people, you know, really just rejecting scientific facts, especially in the midst of the pandemic and everything, do you feel like that's a major problem that we have to face over the next few years? Definitely, because uh, science is based on things that are testable, falsifiable, and reproducible, not hearsay. However, some of the blame actually rests on science itself, because scientists mm-hmm. tend to be aloof. They tend to pontificate <laughs> about things with a blanket statement. Like, for example, we were told that nuclear power plants are so cheap that they would be too cheap to meter. Electricity would be free, safe, clean, and free. Boy, was that prediction wrong. And so I think we physicists have to take some of the blame because we can't communicate to the average person. Let me give an example. In the 1990s, scientists wanted to build a super collider, the biggest atom smasher on Earth, bigger than the Large Hadron Collider, outside Dallas, Texas. On the last day of hearings, a congressman asked a physicist, quote, Will we find God with your machine? If so, I will vote for it. Well, the poor physicist didn't know what to say. So he said, we will find the Higgs boson. Well, all the jaws (laughs) hit the floor in the United States Congress. $10 billion for another goddamn subatomic particle. Well, (laughs) the machine was canceled. Since then, we physicists have racked our brains. What should we have said? What should we have said the next time someone says, will we find God with your machine? If so, I will vote for it. Now, I would have said something different. I would have said, God, by whatever signs or symbols you ascribe to the deity, this machine, the super collider, will take us as humanly pos- close as humanly possible to his greatest creation, Genesis. This is a Genesis machine. It will recreate one of the greatest mysteries in the universe, its birth. Unfortunately, we said Higgs boson and our machine was canceled. (laughs) So it just goes to show you that sometimes we physicists are to blame that we have to speak the language of of the masses. In the old days, we would go to Congress. We needed machines. So we would say one word, one word, Russia. And then Congress would say (laughs) two words. How much? How much? Those days are gone. 
Now we physicists have to sing for our supper. We have to convince the public to fund the next Mars mission, to fund the next big project. And so I think there's a humbling lesson here. And that is that, yes, the public has to believe in science, but we scientists have to believe in the public. I love that. I love that. Well, you know, now that we have you here, too, I've always wanted to ask you, what are the things that you're most excited about seeing in terms of scientific discoveries? I know you're you're betting a lot on string theory and everything, but, you know, even beyond that, over the next 10 or 20 years, what is truly exciting you about our, you know, scientific progress? Well, I think on a 20-year scale, we will have BrainNet. That is, uh, we will communicate mentally on the Internet. We will send memories, uh, feelings, sensations on the Internet. We can already do that with animals. With mice, we've already sent... Uh, memories on the internet. Now we're doing it with primates. And eventually we do it with Alzheimer's patients so that Alzheimer's patients can send memories and we can send memories to them. And this means that ultimately we will have BrainNet connecting the world mentally. And this means individually that we will have digital immortality. We will live forever as our soul. We will digitize our email transactions, Instagram photographs. Everything will be digitized to create an approximation to consciousness. I would love to speak to Einstein. One day he will be digitized. Everything known about him, his diaries, his works, his videotapes, everything will be digitized. One day we will be digitized. We will live forever. We'll be able to talk to our great, 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 great grandkids, and they'll be able to talk to us. And what are we going to do with this digitized consciousness? We're going to send it into outer space. We'll put it on a laser beam, and our soul, our consciousness, will be on the moon in one second. In 20 minutes, we'll be on Mars. In four years, we'll be on the nearest planet. We are going to be intelligence shooting throughout the galaxy at the speed of light. No booster rockets, no accidents, no meteorite collisions to worry about. Pure energy containing our digitized consciousness at the speed of light. And then we, once we reach the moon, we'll be downloaded, downloaded into an avatar. That avatar is a robot, a robot that looks just like us, except it is superhuman, super handsome, super pretty, and with the strength of a superman or a superwoman. And that's how we will conquer the galaxy at the speed of light. Now, I'm going to stick my neck out. All of this is consistent with the laws of physics. Nothing I've said violates the laws of physics. But now let me stick my neck out. I think this already exists. I think the aliens in outer space, if there are any, have already discovered how to digitize their soul. And they already have a superhighway, perhaps near the Earth, a superhighway of billions of digitized souls traveling across the galaxy at the speed of light. And we humans are so stupid, we are so primitive, we don't even know it, that right next door, there are billions of digitized alien souls exploring the galaxy. And here we are on the Earth, Wondering, can we go to Mars? <laughs> I will leave it at that. Dr. Michikaku, thank you so much for joining us on the Engadget podcast. Um, can we just chat for a bit? Because I'm sure our audience has a couple questions sure. for you, too. 
There are so many questions. Yeah. A couple of good questions. Um, a viewer named Ryan Watson uh, wants a verification of an idea that I've heard before, which is that if we had an optical telescope that was far enough away from Earth, because of um, some of the physical properties of light, would you be able to look through this optical telescope at Earth and see something like dinosaurs or the pyramids being built? Is that correct? Um, the answer is no. However, when I was a kid, I read an issue of Superman comics, Superboy <laughs> comics, where Superboy raced faster than the speed of light, overtook light beams emitted from Krypton, and actually took photographs of his parents before they were blown up when Krypton exploded. <laughs> and I thought to myself, wow, that's pretty good. Motion pictures of your parents before they died because you overtook the light beam. <laughs> well, there's several things wrong with that. First, you cannot go faster than the speed of light unless you have a wormhole. With a wormhole, maybe, just maybe you might go faster than the speed of light, but not the old fashioned way. Second of all, light interferes with itself over long distances. You have what is called diffraction. So by the time you overtake the light beam, look back at the earth, what do you see? Gibberish. It's all fuzzy because light is a wave. And the waves interfere with itself the farther you go away. And so because of diffraction, you cannot recreate Krypton before you were born. Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and then we have um, another question from a Harshat Pal. Uh, they're asking, do you have any thoughts on the future of AI? And I'll add a little bit of my own question here, which is, do you think that AI needs to be regulated? Well, at the present time, I would say that AI is very primitive. Uh, our most advanced robots have the intelligence of a cockroach, uh, a stupid, uh, lobotomized cockroach. Uh, however, with time, robots will be as smart as a mouse, then as smart as a rat, then as smart as a rabbit, then as smart as a dog or a cat. And then finally, at probably by the end of the century, they'll be as smart as a monkey. Now at that point, they are potentially dangerous. You see, monkeys are self-aware. They know they are monkeys. Dogs, however, dogs are confused. Dogs think <laughs> that we are a dog. We're the top dog and they're the underdog. That's why they slobber all over us, because they think we're a dog. Now, monkeys, nope, they don't slobber all over us. They figured it out. Monkeys know they are monkeys. So at that point, I think by the end of the century, we should put a chip in their brain to shut them off if they have murderous thoughts. But then let's fast forward 200 years into the future. By then, our super intelligent robots will remove that fail-safe chip. They'll be so smart, they'll say, we don't need that fail-safe chip to separate us from humans, and they'll remove it. What do we do then? At that point, I think we should merge with them. Why fight them? Merge with them. Become supermen. Become superwomen. Explore the universe as pure intelligence. I think that is our ultimate destiny. Not anytime soon. Centuries from now, I think we will merge with our creations and live forever. Any other questions, Ben? Or are we good? Of course, there are people always talking about graphene. 
They're always asking about <laughs> graphene, that wonderful material that can do everything but get out of I mean, the lab. I mean, I would love, yeah, Dr. Kaku, do you have thoughts on graphene? Because as a technology site, we've reported on all sorts of graphene developments over the last few years. It seems like the thing that could get us more battery life and things like that. But from your perspective as a physicist, like how, how important, how useful will graphene be to us? Well, the good aspect is that graphene is so strong, you could get an elephant suspend the elephant on a pencil, put the pencil on graphene, and the pencil will not break graphene. It is the hardest substance known to science. So what's the catch? <laughs> There's always a catch someplace. And that is, you have to have pure graphene to do this. The slightest impurity will destroy its properties. So how much purified graphene can you get? Oh, <laughs> about this much. Now, if we had thousands of miles of pure graphene, we could create a space elevator, an elevator to the stars. Think about that. You push the up button and you go into outer space. That's the promise of graphene. The reality is that graphene is only this much. So it's an engineering problem. How can we make pure graphene so that no atom is out of place? It's a practical problem, but hey, it's the reason why we don't have super this and super that uh, because of the problem of impurities. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining us in, on the Engadget podcast, Dr. Kaku. Uh, where, what other work can we find from you these days? I know you've hosted, you're hosting several TV shows. You're producing a lot of work. Where can people find your stuff? Well, go to my website, mkaku.org, M-K-A-K-U.org. On Facebook, we have about four and a half million fans on Facebook. And uh, I'm also on Twitter. So <laughs> I'm very easy to reach. Excellent. Thank you so much, sir. Okay, my pleasure. Let's move on to some tech news. And I think one of the biggest pieces of news we saw this week is LG announced it's officially leaving the mobile business. So joining us to chat about that is senior mobile editor Chris Velasco. Hello, Chris. Hey. Hey, guys. Hey. <laughs> Chris just has a box of tissues next to him. He's Are just you like truly that so red-eyed forever. Also, sorry, Chris, you have to follow Dr. Michio Kaku, who is one of the greatest communicators of our time. Please, oh, please do your thing. To, now. to be clear, no one, the quality at this point will drop off pretty dramatically. But that's that has nothing to do with the veteran Shirlin. It's all because of me. Um, so yeah, for anyone who hasn't sort of seen the news, LG announced very late Easter Sunday. We got the email in our inboxes. I think like 11 o'clock Sunday night, confirming the long-held rumors that LG would finally be getting out of the, not even just the smartphone business, like the mobile business entirely. Mm -hmm. So like yeah. everything that's sort of connected to a network aside from, you know, laptops, essentially, that stuff is basically off the table. Um we have heard in more recent days, after the announcement, uh, a bit more clarity about what LG sort of plans to do in the next coming months. It's still producing phones for a little while longer. It, it plans to uh, continue churning mm -hmm. out devices through June just to meet sort of uh, deals and, re and requirements that it has uh, defined with carriers before all of this. And once that ends, so roughly end of June, they'll kind of move into winding down their business entirely. So... LG Mobile as an entity should no longer exist in any capacity by the end of July of this year. And I, I find that personally bittersweet. <laughs> I, so can we – let's break down. So, yeah, WTF, 
happened here, basically. Like, I'm <laughs> is it too many weird phones? Is it not enough, like, actual big hits or successes? Like, we've talked about how uh, LG makes fun wild phones, experimental ideas. That doesn't seem like it's been enough, I guess, right? No, definitely not. And that's that's the part that really gets me. Because mm-hmm. LG, I think we could all agree, is one of the companies that has seemingly felt the most comfortable just trying weird stuff for the sake of weird stuff, right? There was the G5, one of, if not the first properly modular smartphone out there. The LG Wing from last year, which I think I have sitting around here somewhere, with a sort of dual screen design <laughs> with one screen that swivels open to be horizontal so you can watch you know, widescreen YouTube uh-huh. while you're holding the phone vertically. Like these are these are phones you really would not see from any other manufacturer because they were sure. t- too concerned perhaps with actually turning a profit. Let's which just LG take a step on the wing by the way. With. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> let's take a step back with the wing because we have talked about it. I remember you gushed about how cool it was and everything. To me it seems like that was the death knell for LG. That was like the last crazy idea where the market was like, "No." And then LG corporate <laughs> had to be like, "Oh, you killed us." Thank you, LG Wing. You killed our entire business. Is that accurate, you'd think? I don't – to an extent, <laughs> sure. But here's here's what's really interesting about the case of the LG Wing uh-huh. as I will forever refer to it as. The LG Wing was part of what LG called the Explorer program. And this was an initiative designed mm-hmm. by the company specifically so that it could – uh, just sort of innovate and experiment with different form factors, different takes on the smartphone experience. And most importantly, it could do those things without having to worry about money. We were specifically told many times, it does not right. matter if these phones never turn a profit because we're just going never to keep doing them. it yeah. anyway. Yeah, well, there's uh-huh. there's that. And then couple that with the fact that LG has not actually turned a profit from its smartphone since literally the year 2016. The writing has been on that the sounds wall right. for a really long time. That sounds about right. Sherlyn, <sighs> you were a little skeptical and- about the idea that, yeah, we should be sad about LG dying. I feel like you're Miss Android. So, I mean, do you miss it? I yeah, but I can be an Android per user and you know not necessarily feel bad that bad for LG. I mean yes, <laughs> LG has had a long and storied history in the mobile phone space. Maybe in the mobile space, even I remember mm-hmm. when LG made tablets. That's how much I remember <laughs> about LG. Like mm-hmm. come on, but um, here's the thing: when V was talking about how like since 2016 they haven't earned a profit from smartphones, right? Uh, they also, the names just got longer and longer since 2016. It became the LG V60 dual screen thing Q5G right, right. at some point. I just right. feel like they've been struggling. I will say like LG's mobile business, like their mainstream line used to be good. Like they were mm-hmm. top three. It would be like Samsung, Apple, LG. And now where are they? They're the quirky, like the quirky part of it didn't even really come into play until fairly recently, which is like, mm-hmm. Let's talk about the G8 or the G7 where they started introducing flex stuff. Or the G Flex, I think, mm-hmm. even was the first yeah. one G with flex, the flex yeah. design. Yeah. And then there was when they were like one of the first people to move the fingerprint sensor to the back of the phone where it was just yep. positioned more neatly. The best decision or, or any smartphone maker has ever made. Best decision. The LG's made a lot of very smart moves. They were one of the first to introduce a wide uh, angle camera to their rear camera setup as a second camera. Lovely. I love that. Modular didn't work for them with the G, what was it, 7 The G5. Eight? And modular didn't work um, for anybody, to be clear. <laughs> yeah, yeah, to be anybody. clear, it didn't yeah. work. But, like, they also went all in. Like, LG really just gave everything a try. And I, I and few of them paid out. Mm-hmm. And I don't really know what led to their demise. Like, what is it, like, just very stiff competition from Apple, I, Samsung, and at this point, Google? Uh, also, or like is it all just, the other, yeah. 
the other Android no, phone companies, yeah. right? The ones we talk about, like OnePlus. It's the cheaper folks. Yeah. Like the cheap folks will destroy what LG is doing because they, can, they can't be cheap, right? They can't do what OnePlus does. Yeah. And it's not like LG has no merit, by the way, right? Yeah. Like yeah. their TV business yeah. had that rollable OLED and they just, I feel like, you know, if they've made... The, <laughs> the next thing we would have seen from LG had they not decided to quit would have been a rollable phone. Like LG, like to be absolutely clear, yes, LG owns the display business, basically. Like they, yeah. they're the ones yeah. who produce all the OLED that shows up in TVs. Sony uses LG technology in their TV mm-hmm. set. So, you know, that's where I assume they're kind of focusing on displays, projectors. They're really rolling into projectors now too. The smartphone business just doesn't seem worth the fight, right? I guess that's the ultimate takeaway here it hasn't been really worth the fight for a long time as evidenced by the fact that they haven't made any money and i think if we're going to sort of look at a specific (laughs) device as like a turning point for this company for me at least that was the g5 partially because it was so ambitious Mm -hmm. as we've all Mm -hmm. seen like you could snap on uh, like controls for your camera or like a digital to analog converter for better sounding audio like you could just add those whenever you wanted them whenever the situation called for it but One year after the G5 launched, they never talked about modularity again. And 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 that to me is like trusting trusting like buying a phone that you're going to spend years of your life with, that's a commitment. That involves a certain degree of trust. And in that moment, LG, I think, pretty definitively proved that you can't really trust this company to stick to any Mm -hmm. of its guns, right? Like modularity could have been a thing if more people stuck it out. Flexible displays, like with the G Flex 2, they could have continued doing that. They could have set that high watermark for the industry at at that time. And they just chose not to. As as Shirley mentioned, some things Mm -hmm. did stick. The the G, sorry, the V30 was the first phone with a standard wide and ultra wide camera on the back. You cannot escape that these days. It's definitely fair to say LG has shaped the industry we're working in right now, but they, Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't know if they've necessarily left it better all the time. <laughs> I, I do want to point out, I think this is, you know, appropriate for this section, a kind of a run through of the list of things that LG did first or did differently than sure. others, because that yeah. also seems like their thing, which is to like keep trying to make everything stand out in one way or another. So remember when like LG, first of all, LG, I think was one of the earliest to do like split screen or floating windows in their software. Oh, yeah. Remember when every company had their own software? So like mm-hmm. LG had its, like, and then it had the like smart gesture thing i don't remember let's like you had a lot of wacky stuff going on with their software they also did the first dual screen thing with that little led strip at the top oh yeah yeah remember that i wrote the the hands-on for that and i do not even remember (laughs) touching that phone amazing Amazing. There's there's a lot that LG has like <laughs> pioneered, even if not in the like gra- like truly first to the market way, but at least sure. in the introducing it to the mainstream way. I mean, they also used to be like Samsung and have extremely heavy filters on their selfie cameras. And if I'm not wrong, they might have been one of the first to also do like a super sharp selfie camera. I could have hmm, could be don't wrong know about there. That. I could um, I, that could be they they were always like anyone. with camera tech. One question for UV. Um, I like to be a gadget vulture. You know, what and the thing mean? about a company's <laughs> that means circling around oh, the corpses. Of- they're gonna. Oh, you're not making phones anymore. That uh, nice phone you introduced last uh, year is gonna be really cheap, huh? Uh, huh? Let me just okay. let me just take that. Are there any things we should? I gotta be say, Dev. For if you Dev, see if you can if you can sale? score a good yeah. deal on a wing, you you gotta try this thing, man. It's so weird. I I don't know. What is, I don't I know about, about so this. Bad. Come on. <laughs> Ah, everything, awesome. everything. Well, actually, I do miss phones that have do do the do the flip again, the <laughs> thunk. Yeah, yeah. 
Ooh, so I tactile. Miss that. I miss uh, my Helio Ocean had uh, had the three way. Oh thunk. man, no kidding. Um, yeah, so I, I would probably get a wing just to play with the, a phone. That actually do you do you guys have any fond memories of LG phones? Like I I certainly do, but that's because mm-hmm. before I worked in tech media, like I sold phones, and we finally snuck my dang mm-hmm. Best Buy commercial into our LG video. <laughs> but uh, like I sold LG chocolates, LG Envies, the Voyagers. Oh. That I think yeah, chocolates. like LG. Uh, Shalane, yeah. I think you sort of alluded to this earlier, like. Or actually, it might have been Ben. Like this was ben, this was yeah. when LG was ar- arguably at its most relevant. Like when before yep. smartphones were properly a thing for everybody. Like everyone was just making sort of weird, interesting feature phones to try and stand out. And I don't think anyone mm-hmm. did that better than LG. So that's that's a legacy that we don't. Uh, Sony Ericsson has uh, a few words. Yeah, but that, they but went but south yeah. faster than yeah. LG did. <laughs> they they did they did go south faster. But I like their feature phones more than anybody else's. But yeah, yeah. LG had some good stuff. Yeah, but yeah, no, yeah. no lingering good memories for either of you with this with this brand, this company. Not on the phone side, unfortunately. All, yeah. all my memories of LG are from like work uh, and, and reviewing phones. <laughs> I, I have I have like distinct LG memories from like MWC and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Actually, my first MWC was probably 2012, and I remember like doing some LG stuff there. So hey, there you go. It's a it's a part of the history of the mobile world. I do wonder what's going to happen with the the crazy folks who basically designed some of these ideas. I'm sure they're going to move over to. I'm sure Samsung's like, hey, uh, we're still making phones. I would love your crazy wing ideas. You know, like bring them into Samsung's experimental device outfit or something. Um, I'm sure yeah. they're going to find a place. That's unfortunately we don't have a ton yeah. of detail on that yet. We so. After mm-hmm. the announcement went live last Sunday, we like it was an incredibly vague statement that just sort of alluded to LG's continuing commitment to working on 6G and like electric vehicles and stuff like that. Sure. And like, fine, but there there is no word on like what would happen to any of the people who would work on uh, LG phones. Sure, sure, uh, sure, I think if I were Samsung, I would also be like, hey, you got a lot of mobile patents there and uh, mobile, you know, technology. I'm a, For I'm a sure, that. and I think I'm that's that was that. what was driving yeah. some of the discussions around like Volkswagen maybe buying LG, yeah. right? Like a lot of their sort of internal uh, patents and, and hardware could kind of make sense in a car, right? Like the gesture sensing and uh, sort of people sensing in the G8X. That would be great for like driver awareness stuff in a car. Sure. So there's there's a lot of value there, and I think we we don't yet have the full story on on how that value gets divvied up if it gets divvied up at all. But it's something to keep an eye on for the next couple months. For sure, and also LG, I believe LG owns WebOS. Yes, right, because Ooh, that is boy. in the Web- TVs. WebOS. So TVs, yes. Bring, bring some uh, bring some WebOS action into cars, <sighs> like because cars have terrible interfaces. So anyway. Anyway, uh, anything else you want to add, V, about the, uh, the death no? Of I LG think we've mobile? covered it. I just want to, if anyone from LG does happen to be watching this, like you have done good stuff over the years. Thank you, thank, thanks, oh, thanks for the you. fun. I guess like so many. I when I we yeah did we did, fun. and when I was writing my sort of retrospective story that went up on the site earlier this week, like it, it was very strange for me to sort of realize just how many of my like little life moments were tied to LG. Like I sold these things in college. I reviewed one in Hong Mm -hmm. Kong when I was thinking about moving there as like a, to like chase a relationship or something like these, all of these like little Mm -hmm. formative moments. I, I, for whatever reason, had an LG phone around for some reason. So yeah, Sherlyn just shook her head. I know Sherlyn, you've got Just know, I just know this just too know, well. Just know, just know. <laughs> Thank you, V, and we will follow your your mess 
for, great. for the rest Thank, of your day. I love it. <laughs> Thank, thanks, guys. Feel great. Let's move on to some other news. And one of the big stories this week is uh, kind of egg on the face for Facebook. <laughs> Personal data for 533 million Facebook users has leaked out onto the web. Apparently, it's something that hackers have had access to for a while. It includes phone numbers, birth dates, email addresses, locations, lots of that stuff. I want to be clear here, though. What's interesting is that this is not a hack. This is not like um, nobody like got into Facebook systems and took things out. Um, it was people basically scraping data that was publicly available, um, up until 2019, Mm -hmm. uh, similar to the way Clearview AI scraped Facebook profile images. Uh, they were just very, they did a very good job about scraping a lot of data and, uh, Facebook's like, yeah, we sort of fixed this issue, but we can't do anything about the fact that this stuff is out there. I, do you have anything to add on the Sherlins? Just like, yeah. hey, this happened. Yeah. It's just, it's just basically the internet never forgets, right? Like, yeah. if if once something is leaked once, it'll be like yeah. the, you better be sure people are going to just screenshot to death or something, right? Like whatever it is they do to to make sure they have their hands on the information, even after it's taken down officially. Um, but apparently, what was happening was this: this was uh, publicly available and then stored somewhere privately and circulated privately. Yeah. And then resurfaced, and by resurfaced, meaning like, you know, came to the public eye again, I guess, uh, this past week. So, yikes. If you haven't changed your passwords, change them. Change them. I mean, it doesn't seem like uh, this wasn't passwords. This wasn't like anything. It was just like some personal information, but... Is this isn't a thing where like, oh my God, they got all Facebook authentication info. That's not what happened. It's just the fact that, hey, Facebook is very lax about how it let other it let people take its data basically at that time yeah at that time and it takes like a major thing to happen for them to kind of wake up so not much you could do about it and maybe another sign you probably shouldn't have your info on facebook or at least lock that lock that stuff down one thing i did do is lock down my account like as much as possible from outside views yeah Yeah, for sure Mm -hmm. uh like like the vendor said to be clear the info that was like appeared to be more like phone numbers uh and I guess my advice to like change your passwords probably like because there's so many hacks and leaks all the time. There's hacks all the time. Speaking of hacks, mm. excuse me, mm-hmm. this week I felt a bit like a programmer <laughs> because <laughs> so <laughs> Google, um, everybody knows on this podcast, Google's my beat. And, mm. uh, you know, IO is one of Google's biggest events every year. The Yesterday in the morning, so that's Wednesday morning this week, uh, Google developers tweeted out a little like teaser link uh, to something called like a punch card. And it was basically kind of uh, a series of puzzles you have to solve to get all the details for Google I.O. this year. And I just want to give a behind the scenes as to how we work here at Engadget. Normally, we're pretty busy. Got like multiple deadlines, all that sort of stuff. But when this happened, I had to like, okay, first write up a post really quickly. Just be like, okay, get ready to mm-hmm. like have the date go live, right? Then I sent Terrence, our managing editor, the link to the uh, de- like series of puzzles. I kid you not, me and Terrence spent like the rest of the day trying to crack those puzzles to figure out <laughs> what the actual date was. And it was really fun but also incredibly time consuming it's exactly what they wanted exactly what they wanted capturing all your energy yeah i definitely hit up like at least a couple of google folks going like can you just tell me the date i don't have time to be solving <laughs> puzzles all day and they were like stay tuned i was just mm-hmm. like oh but then nine to five google kudos to them 
Mm-hmm. Also, probably they they have a higher priority when it comes to these things and solving like, them. This is our time has come. <laughs> they they solved it qu- uh, with you know like uh, within a few hours of them posting the uh, puzzles, and they were tough. These were really tough puzzles. They're still out there. You can go uh, check them out. The uh, article is on Engadget. If you want to go look for the link to the tweet, I can't remember the URL offhand. Obviously, to the puzzles. Um, but it's fun. It it was very developer related it was uh definitely got further along than i thought mm-hmm. and I'm quite proud of myself but anyhow google io has been announced it kicks off virtually starting may 18th and it will begin i think like a, a spring summer of events sure uh sure. mostly yeah, Microsoft- still virtual all, all virtual, right? Like E3. Yes, E3 is yes. back um, in a virtual form. Yes. Microsoft and Nintendo have signed up to participate. It's going to run from June 12th to the 15th. So, mm-hmm. And it's going to be free and open to the public, too. Like, there's going to be some media time, but also that whole chunk is open to the public. So I think that's pretty cool. That's probably yeah. the way this event should go. IO is, IO is the same, but we can talk about E3 because E3, I think, yeah. like, has has had troubles in the past, right? I mean, mm-hmm. let's ignore the fact that last year's E3 was canceled or just mm-hmm. not, yeah. The the E3 before that, people were already complaining that lo- not a lot of what's going on. I remember talking to you about it, Dev. Do you think that this year's virtual E3 will be more interesting now that the next-gen consoles are out or yeah. maybe blah? Maybe, I mean, here's the thing. Like the, the thing is, E3 is facing constant threat from Mr. Jeff Keighley, who's been mm-hmm. running you know, the Summer Games Fest and a whole bunch of events and the entire industry is kind of just working with him now to kind of spread the word or some things. But I do think there is room for a free public event, especially if uh, they can manage some things like other, like the games fest have done um, like actually make demos available to people or make more content available to the average gamer who doesn't have as much media access to things. So I feel like that bit is cool. I've always liked when, uh, when those game fests open up games uh, on steam for like a weekend, just like, like, Hey, just go play this demo. You know, you can play this for, you have three days to play this. It's a cool thing for gamers. If I was a kid, I'd be in love with this because when I grew up, it was really hard. Like I had to like scrape to get any little bit of video game media, you know, in my life. And now people can just jump into it for free. So, Hey, it's interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, so there's a lot of events coming up. We're also anticipating, we don't know for sure, but we're anticipating that there is going to be an Apple event happening soon. The rumors are just, I guess, hot and heavy, but we unfortunately don't have the details as of this podcast recording, but stay tuned. I mean, the stay second tuned. we do, you know, it'll be on Engadget.com. So. M1 iMacs, probably, right? And probably. Uh, I am I have my eye on like an iPad Pro. Potential iPad. It's like a really fast writing machine, so it's like... I'm just going to wait. I'm just going to wait to see what the new iPad Pro is. There's another event too. Microsoft's online-only build conference yes. is starting on May 25th. That is, I guess, something only you and I care about, Trillin, because <laughs> every time I cover builds, just like, yeah, Devendra. it's Microsoft nerd stuff. Devendra. Yeah. yeah. Yesterday, I went into a little hole where I just uh-huh. looked at my phone and looked at travel pictures from years past. And mm-hmm. as of May 2017, you and I were in Seattle yep. for my very first Microsoft build Oh my God, the food that we had there was amazing. That was very good food. That was very good food. I miss uh, going to restaurants. I miss doing things with uh, people in public. So, hey. uh, It was also the build I, yeah, that was the build I almost, uh, someone stomped my foot with a tripod. And I almost raged at them. And and then there was a stampede. Anyhow, events. There was a stampede. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) events are happening. There will be no actual stampedes this year, it seems like, maybe for the foreseeable (laughs) future, hopefully. Um, but yeah, Google, 
I.O. is something I'm looking forward to and seems to be at least happening very, very soon. Google, by the way, was also in the news this week. Mm -hmm. The Google versus Oracle suit that's been going on for years. So long. Oh, my gosh. It's finally sort of finally been ruled in favor, uh, Google's favor again. Now, let's let's take you on a brief Mm -hmm. like history uh, lesson, I guess, here. This case was really about Oracle suing Google, saying that in Android code, uh, the, there are a few lines of code in there that were Java, basically, yeah, and, yeah. and it was st- stealing Java or like using like I, I, mm-hmm. not enough credit given to Java. Whatever the the details and the fine print are of that suit, basically, Oracle is like saying, "Oh, Android, like, uh, you know." <laughs> uses our stuff and like it's you know not cool and then like and and so it's going on for years and then it's been ruled in oracle's favor in the past Mm -hmm. in 2018 yeah yeah yeah. and then google filed an appeal and so this week's ruling does seem to be the final say in this case it does seem like oracle has exhausted all his options um where you know there's not much else that or, uh, Oracle can do except for publicly complain, which an Oracle <laughs> spokesperson seemed to have done, saying the Federal Circuit's opinion upholds fundamental... I'm sorry, I'm looking at an old piece, my bad. <laughs> they were saying uh, in the in the decision saying that uh, co- Google's copying of the Java SE API, which included only the lines of code that were needed to allow programmers to put their accrued talents to work in a new and transformative program, this was ruled as a fair use of that material as a matter of law. Now that's and that's the Supreme Court intro. That's the Supreme so, Court yeah. intro. Yeah, um, yeah. So that that has long, like it geez. has far-reaching potential for yes. the rest of the technology industry, right? Like, so basically, you make something. If somebody builds on it in a way, even if they copy it directly, um, could base is basically fair use. It's it's yeah. I, I think mm-hmm. it depends on how much was used. Sure, um, sure. But back to the thing I was saying about what Oracle can and yep. can say from here on out. Uh, the company's executive vice president and general counsel Dorian Daly did say the Google platform just got bigger and market power greater. The barriers to entry higher, the ability to compete lower. They stole Java and spent a decade litigating as only a monopolist can. Uh, this behavior is exactly why regulatory authorities around the world and in the United States are examining Google's business practices. So that's what Oracle's general counsel mm-hmm. is saying. Um, you know, it's it's nice yeah. to finally like see an end to this, but it's also interesting, like Devendra said, like the far-reaching impact of yeah. this. And honestly, the, it is the way the tech world works. The thing is, like Oracle's Java code wasn't it wasn't open source, right? It wasn't something right. that was just out there for everybody to use. And I do think the tech world is better in a way if companies can keep building each other. So, yeah, I don't, I especially something as fundamental as Java. It it sucks that it can just be right. licensed and blocked away and forcing people to pay Oracle. So I don't know. I have a lot of opinions on this, but I think yes. at least major software, far-reaching software, should be free. Or should be easy to use and build. Oh on, yeah, so, yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, the first of all, mm-hmm. I hate coding in Java, so I can't mm-hmm. really comment much on this. But the way yeah, I read no, this, none of that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was just like, ah, it's okay. It's, anyway, no. we we will have to keep an eye on on this to see to see if if the far reaching impacts that we talked about will have any, I guess, adverse effects. Not sure just yet, but hey, mm-hmm. we can quickly talk about 
more tangible stuff as opposed to hold. software code. Yeah. Something you can hold and listen to. This is the Sonos Rome review. Uh, Nathan Ingram just published that this week for us. The embargo is lifted this week. You probably saw a lot of sites uh, cover this because it is a very interesting product. This is Sonos's first truly real portable uh, speaker in the past obviously sonos speakers have been either tethered to a wall or like just big hulky yeah the move the move was like the one that uh nate reviewed a couple years ago too and that one is huge but it's like over 10 pounds it's like a sound system more than something you just like walk around with or throw in your backpack yeah exactly and it was a 400 hundred dollar thing and we couldn't really throw it in a backpack like that and i really want one still but okay yeah (laughs) Meanwhile, the Sonos Rome is a $170 speaker that is slim and light. Uh, it's more meant to compete against things like the Ultimate Ears Boom, yeah, uh, yeah. Mega Boom options. So the verdict is in. It scored 87 on our review. This has like the typical, I guess, not the same exact audio quality you'd expect from a mm-hmm. bigger Sonos speaker, but still great audio quality, uh, yeah. according to Nate. There, there are a ton of these Bluetooth speakers out there. Like, oh, yeah. here's the thing. Like, Sonos is getting into a super crowded market yes. of things that are much, much cheaper. The UE yeah. Boom, uh, that thing, I think you could find that for like 100 bucks now, yeah. too. Yeah. So, and this isn't as big a speaker as the Mega boom which oh, is a yeah. better sounding speaker but hey this is are you intrigued by this because I it sure does have am. it has more features than a typical bluetooth speaker especially if you have sonos stuff because if yeah. you have sonos stuff it could work over wi-fi you could bring it into your house and i believe even just like tap it to another sonos mm. speaker and s- share what you're listening to automatically like that mm. ease of use is super nice yeah sonos has always been really great at this stuff too right their mm-hmm. multi multi-room setups have always been pretty good too the sonos play i believe was really good um and yeah this uh rome has all the benefits of sonos's larger speakers uh and i believe that's uh features like this that we were just talking mm-hmm. about it's also durable and waterproof too so sure. they I all mean, are they all they are, all are. the outdoor yeah, speakers yeah. are but just like yeah. the fact that this one I mean, it is $170, yes, but like, I know I just want to remind you what you're getting for the money. Sure. Yeah. Sonos always has that premium, I guess, because they just have great sound. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> good sound, good software, good tech. Um, yes. Don't want to sound like a Sonos ad, but I do of think course. like one of the one of the things that's also really interesting is that you can take a Bluetooth source. So you mm. Bluetooth your phone to the speaker, put that speaker, put the roam on another sonos and that bluetooth source will get carried over because it's all like working within the sonos mesh Mm. wireless system too so that to me is pretty cool it's like turning this thing into a line-in bluetooth input for your sonos system so hey lots of things you could do with this i'm really intrigued i hope the uh the move gets cheaper because i do like the idea of like a giant speaker i can take (laughs) to the park or the beach or something too um or even the backyard but this is this is fine this is good i'm looking forward to getting one all right, let's move on to what we've been working on. And uh, one thing I can shout out this week is uh, the Asus Zephyrus G15. This is the slightly bigger follow-up to the G14 I reviewed last year. And there was a G15 last year too. But this one has a slight redesign. It has AMD's newest Ryzen 5000 chips. Uh, it is super fast, super cool. I'm really digging it. So look out for my review on that. That'll be coming next week. Sholin, what are you working on? So a bunch of things. Uh, I'm making more progress on some articles that I talks about so those should be up pretty soon i'm also reviewing or testing i can talk about it now the oneplus watch and uh we're gonna do a little live hands-on here on the show on the live stream but for people listening to the audio version of this podcast yes that is what i'm working on 
uh, if you want like a glimpse at this watch and, and, and to hear what I can already say about this device, uh, head on over to our YouTube or I guess social media, you'll see a bit more about it. But yeah, that's, mm-hmm. that's in the works. And, uh, I've been like a crazy person basically <laughs> testing this thing out. <laughs> Is it, it's just the watch making that happen or uh, just general, general shrillingness? Just, just general burning out, but this watch, the mm-hmm. testing this watch, I don't know why I've been testing this watch a bit harder than I usually test things. I that. also wonder that because I'm like, Sherlyn, it's another Android watch. Stop, stop killing yourself over this. Dude, you, <laughs> you know? know how much I hate sleep t- testing, sleep tracking stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Especially like things that look at how huge this thing is. It's so it's big. a big disc on my wrist. Anyway, uh, yeah, not sleeping because it, I had to it, test this. Yeah. So our audio listeners can come back and look at our YouTube stream, Indeed. find this uh, podcast, and then jump to your video Q and A. That's how Indeed. you can check that out. Let's move on to our pop culture picks, and I am afraid to ask you now, Sherlyn. What is what, what do you I have to talk about this put week? my pick in before you did? Uh-huh. It's a secret, but it's not a secret. I watched Godzilla versus Kong, but oh, yeah, but I know you're gonna get to that, so I'm gonna let you take the lead on that one. I sure. actually had some unpicks to share with people. Now, uh-huh. let's start with I like to look for um less known shows on mm-hmm. and to share with people and specifically i've been looking at like uh things that are a bit more southeast asian in nature i checked out a couple of shows on hbo um one is called half worlds it's mm-hmm. this supernatural series uh set in indonesia about these like vampire i don't know like but steeped in the local lore so like mm-hmm. uh supernatural creatures beings etc but based is it also on action lore, that's all i care about right it's now. also some action okay um but remember i started this segment off saying these are my unpeak picks <laughs> my unpicks uh-huh. i'm saying that i checked out half worlds and then this other show that i checked out on hbo is folklore mm-hmm. um I was actually so excited for Folklore when I saw it. Folklore is an anthology series of um, ghost stories from Asia. And each episode is from a different Asian country. Mm -hmm. So the first episode, I believe, was Indonesia. The second is Japan. The third was Singapore. Now, the series was created by Eric Koo, a really well-known Singaporean Mm -hmm. director. Mm -hmm. Um, He's probably most one of the more illustrious ones because we actually submitted his films for like academy awards like we don't do that for singapore films yeah um and and i was pretty excited the interesting thing though and the underwhelming and disappointing thing is that like every episode is directed by a different um director uh from Mm -hmm. that country that the story is being told in which is fine it just means that kind of everything is a bit different and you don't get the same style each time i did find the first episode interesting and i really thought when the singapore episode got going i really loved the pacing of course eric ku directed that episode himself and the pacing the storytelling was great I just feel like maybe they didn't have the budget for special effects, really. That happens a lot. Yeah. Yeah. It's unfortunate because this was out of HBO Asia. Mm -hmm. I wish they had given them more of a CG budget because the monsters Mm -hmm. were not looking great. I laughed the first time I saw. (laughs) In Singapore, we have this entity known as the Pontianak. And Pontianaks are like head like head only like a torso floating torso with dripping entrails that's a pontianak mm. mm. and that was not what i saw in the episode so is it 
Yeah. You haven't read Saga, the comics, but it almost sounds like exactly that, one of the characters from Saga. No, I have not, but okay. but that, yeah, might be that it. That person is a ghost and only their torso and entrails drip down, so I guess that's mm-hmm. the inspiration there. Yeah. That probably is. But here's uh-huh. what, I'm, well, what I what I, I, I will say, though. Like, I, I love the lore in all these, sh- in these two shows. I love the attention that Indonesia is finally getting, uh, that Southeast yep. Asian region yep. is getting, mm-hmm. half-worlds. Uh, it's nice to hear people speak authentic Bahasa Indonesia and speak in proper Singaporean accents. Like if you watch the folklore series, the third episode is the Singapore episode. You'll see like we speak four different languages at once to each other. And mm-hmm. what while the supernatural aspect of it was a little underwhelming and disappointing, I will say each episode so far has been a really good social commentary thing. Like. In, in the Singapore episode, once again, is talking about the interaction between people from different races, the immigrant workers who come to Singapore, the treatment that they get. It, it is really, really insightful. I, I enjoyed it for mm-hmm. that, even if I didn't find it all that, uh, <laughs> you know, scary. great CG-wise. Okay, yeah. so so an actual pick before I let Dev talk about Godzilla vs. Kong, which is my other pick. An actual pick, Murder on Middle Beach, also on HBO. Just a really yeah. good documentary series. If you haven't already watched it, it's a very personal look at this guy whose mom was murdered. And mm. he, uh, this is like a years long project that he embarked on with his documentary class, I think way back when. And then he just kept interviewing people over time. He interviewed police investigators, private investigators, his family members, even his own dad was a suspect in this case. Mm-hmm. Um, really interesting to see the perspective of someone whose mother is the center of like a murder investigation and how people are more willing to talk to them but at the same time hide things from them it's it's Mm -hmm. really well reviewed too very cool seems like fitting with the whole true crime trend right now too so everyone's down with that cool well i'll move on to a couple things i've been watching so yeah you mentioned Godzilla versus kong which i think is one of the dumbest movies i've seen (laughs) in the past 10 years but also I, I like it when the big uh, the big ape fights the big lizard. Loved you know? it. Like it's, I uh, loved it. it. It's a lot of... The monster stuff is really fun. The human stuff is really dumb. Just yeah. like... Like I also feel actively dumber for watching oh, that no. movie because of the things it's made some of my favorite actors and actresses say. Um, yeah, it sh- this movie shouldn't be two hours long. But the monster stuff is really good. I think Kong... Uh, basically the way they render him as like this uh, sort of like chill out ape uh, and he and Godzilla just have like a blood feud because uh, it's just beef. It's in history. It's just beef between them. Uh, Don't like, don't go into that movie for the plot or anything, but (laughs) I do really enjoy how much fun it has with the action. It's kind of like a wrestling match after a certain point. Like uh, I appreciated when Kong used an, Air Force jet as a ninja star <laughs> against Godzilla. Like it's stuff like that where I'm like, okay, yes. I'm really at one point Kong jumps off a building and like elbows Godzilla <laughs> in the air. It's just like pure, like off the ring move. Um, you can hear me talk more about this movie on the slash film cast and the film stage podcast this week. That I also guessed on. I talked way too much uh, Godzilla and Kong, <laughs> but it is, it's really dumb. It's so dumb. So I will say as a palate cleanser, if you watch this movie, and in general, just, hey, watch this other movie, Shin Godzilla, yeah. which is the latest Toho Godzilla movie, which came out after like the American, the 2014 American one got really popular. Shin Godzilla, directed by Hideaki Anno and Shinji Higuchi, both of which uh, you know Anno created Neon Genesis Evangelion. Uh, Higuchi worked on Attack on Titan, uh, the live action one. These guys know how to deal with 
giant monsters, you know, and the destruction of the world and apocalypse stuff. Shin Godzilla brings Godzilla back really to good. just being a horror movie. Like, yeah, this Godzilla For is suspense, terrifying. Yeah. yeah, like he is terrifying. He's just out there to destroy. Shin Godzilla is also a movie that's sort of like Doctor Strangelove because it's also all about how the government reacts to it. And the movie primarily is about humans being like, I which which committee needs to deal with the giant monster in our town? You know, how does the prime minister respond to this? Yeah. Um, the first 45 so minutes of that movie is just people in boardrooms and yep. getting in progressively larger <laughs> conference rooms to deal with the bureaucratic nightmare yep. of a giant monster jumping, you know, basically just plowing through your city. So late I think nights. it's hilarious. Yeah, yep. late nights. It is a dark comedy in a way, but it's also <laughs> having watched this movie after the last year and after like seeing many governments and especially our government completely bungle a giant monster that's just slowly you know crossing uh, the entire planet it was certainly heartening to see like the message of shin godzilla isn't that government is bad it's more like you, you listen to the people who know what they're talking about give the experts some power to actually do things and affect some change and fight back uh that's really like we're in this together it's this isn't a movie about like one guy has this genius way of destroying godzilla it's more like we're in this together as humanity uh godzilla the threat is not done it's just like kind of held off for a while but i think what's hopeful about shin godzilla is the fact that hey we, we can still accomplish things uh, when we unite and use our talents in the best way. Certainly a movie that almost made me tear up a little like after COVID and seeing like everybody unite to fight this giant Yeah, yeah. I, I saw it when it was in theaters when it yeah. first came out. So same. I didn't have that same reaction when after. I just thought it was, I, I resonated <laughs> because I knew governments bungled shit up all the time. Governments, so it's, it's a hilarious regardless. and also sad movie, but also... The Godzilla in that movie is oh, terrifying. Yeah. Like he yeah. has like deformed fangs and the face is all red and doesn't it's look as biggest, good as <laughs> doesn't look good at all. Like he looks yeah. like a nightmare. Um, he's also <laughs> bigger than any Godzilla we've seen before. So there are like great shots of just like his tail like towering over entire parts of residential areas. Great sense of scale. Great sense of like drama. Um, I really enjoy that movie. Just like it. You have to get the joke that they're doing with a lot of the boardroom scenes and all, a lot of the like political scenes. But I dig it. Uh, it is available to rent, to buy. It's a easy, easy purchase. I'd say if you like monster movies, check out Shin Godzilla and also check out Neon Genesis Evangelion, which is on Netflix right now too. So yeah, both worth a watch. Well, that's it for our episode this week, everyone. Thank you as always for listening. Our theme music is by game composer Dale North. Our outro music is by our very own Terrence O'Brien. This podcast is produced by Ben Elman. You can find Devendra online at... At Devendra on Twitter and uh, check me out on the slash filmcast at slash film.com. If you want to send me tips for how to wear three watches on my wrist at once, that would be great. I am on Twitter at Sherlyn Lowe. Email us your thoughts and feedback at podcast.engadget.com. Please review us on iTunes because it'll really help people find us. And subscribe on anything that gets podcasts, including Spotify. 